Well, good morning, church. It's great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, please turn in your Bibles to that passage that Megan just read, um, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Uh, no, we took a week off, but we are still in Galatians, in case you were wondering. Uh, and in this passage that we're getting to today, um, Paul has just gotten done, if you remember from a few weeks back, um, kind of personally, like, just asking the Galatians, like, you know, what's going on here? Kind of, like, really kind of compassionately pouring his heart out to the Galatians, kind of telling them, I was with you, I was there, you, you know, we shared things, and, uh, you know, what has become of you? Why have you wandered away? Why do you think all of a sudden I've become your enemy and telling you the truth? And kind of, like, entreating upon them. And then, so we get to this passage, and Paul, once again, um, goes back to the Old Testament, um, and it's kind of funny, last time I was up here uh, speaking um, three messages ago, I was also talking about an illustration that Paul had about the Old Testament, um, where that one he was preaching about the covenants and the difference between uh, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, and specifically that um, through Jesus Christ, we become heirs to the promise that was given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, in this passage today... Um, Honestly, it's one of the ones that, like, when you're reading it, if you're reading Galatians kind of all the way through, you can kind of just, like, skim by because it can kind of be one of those ones that kind of seems a little bit odd. Maybe it doesn't fit in real well. You, you kind of just gravitate towards verse 31 where he just kind of sums it up. So we are not children of the slave but of the free woman, which is then going to launch him into where he's going in chapter 5 and the whole um, kind of application piece of what he wants to teach the Galatians from this passage. But honestly, the teaching from this section right here is actually very rich. Um, it actually has me really excited to be talking about it this morning because um, there's a lot to it and a lot that we can draw from it as far as the connection that we have um, to the Old Testament through Jesus Christ that makes this all um, possible, as Paul's going to illustrate here. So um, let's just dive in. Uh, we're going to start with verse 21, to ask you, just answering that first question, like, what does this passage say? Uh, he says, he starts out saying, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, this is just Paul's kind of introductory like, way of well, where he's, what he's about to do. He's just kind of basically calling attention to the fact, all right, you guys who are, you know, supposedly claiming that you want to be under the law, you, you think that that's not what you need to do. Well, have you even read it, in other words? He's like, do you really even understand what is being said? And then he's going to launch into uh, an illustration from the book of Genesis. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible and you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you might know that in Genesis, uh, Genesis happens actually before Moses and the law actually get brought into play, which is in Exodus. Um, however, you got to understand it from the Jewish perspective. In the Jewish perspective, Genesis was part of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, which also would be referred to when they were talking about the law being the Pentateuch. So, in Paul's mind, he's referring basically back to the Pentateuch, back to the law, and basically going to make this reference as far as like, all right, those of you who are claiming to be under the law, you want to be under the law, do you really understand what the law is even teaching you? In other words, let me, let me show you. And here he's going to go into verse 22. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now it's going to be important for me to just take a moment um, and just 
tell you guys the story just in case you're not, even if you're, you might be really familiar with it, you might not be familiar with it at all. The story of Ishmael and Isaac, okay? In the book of Genesis, we see in Genesis 12, God basically telling Abraham, promising him that amongst many other things, amongst promising him land, blessings, all this stuff, he says, I will make your offspring more numerous than the stars. I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars. Now, in order to have descendants more numerous than the stars, what is the first thing you need to have? An heir, a child. What is, guess what Abraham did not have? A child, an heir. In this, and in those times, an heir was considered a son, but you know, that was just in those times. So he, he didn't have a kid. He didn't have anyone. He had his wife, Sarah, and they had no kids. And time goes on, and Abraham follows God's commands. He moves his family. You know, they, they do some different things. God provides for them in supernatural, awesome ways. But there's still this hanging problem. Abraham doesn't have a son. He doesn't have an heir. And for Abraham and Sarah, it becomes a test of faith. And Sarah eventually says to Abraham, saying, look, I'm, I'm too old, and, and I'm barren, and, and, and I haven't been able to provide you a kid, but God has this promise, so we, we, we need to do something. So she comes up with a plan. And while in these days, like today's culture, like this seems like the most ridiculous plan in the world, back then it actually wasn't that crazy of a plan. Like it was actually pretty common. She's like, I have this slave woman, Hagar. She's my slave. Marry her, have a child with her, so that you will, be, that you will have an heir. And this is actually common practice back then, because if your wife, you know, wouldn't, if, if you were of a certain stature of family, you know, if you had a wife and she wasn't producing an heir for you, specifically a son, you know, they would then go to the, like, marry a slave of that wife because it still was legal in that way and it would still kind of fall under that kind of heirship and that son would become the heir that that slave bore to you. So this is their plan and this is what they do. And so, they, so Abraham marries Hagar, has a child, son. His name is Ishmael, okay? However, after this all happens, God comes in and says, no. Ishmael will not be your heir. I told you I would give you a son, and I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. And Abraham actually laughs, and then Sarah laughs, and they just think it's funny because like, Abraham's like, I'm almost 100, and Sarah's almost 90. And while, yeah, they maybe lived a little bit longer, still at this point, that was really old. <laughs> it was just too old to have a kid, and they just think it's this ridiculous idea that you're going to, yeah, God, you're going to give us a son. But guess what? God, being all-powerful, being supernatural, being, you know, nothing can stop him, divine, makes it happen. Sarah's, Sarah conceives a son, and they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Kind of there is God's way of kind of poking fun of him. Uh, Say, so keep laughing, all right? Here you go. <laughs> uh, gives him Isaac. So, and eventually, we, God makes it clear that Isaac will be the true heir of the promise that was given to Abraham. Okay? That's, now, there's a lot more details that we could get into that we're not going to today. But that's just kind of a summary story of Ishmael and Isaac and how they came to be and what what, why they were both born and Isaac being the true heir that God had promised through Sarah. All right? So we're going to continue 
with back in Galatians, okay? Uh, verse 23, he says, Paul saying, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Uh, this is a pretty important thing to uh, make sure we're all on the same page with right here. So where it's, where Paul's basically saying, the son of the slave, the son of Hagar, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. In other words, it was a natural event. Man slept with a young woman. She produced a son. It's biology. Okay, there's nothing supernatural about it. That's how that works. Okay, I think we all understand that. Um, you know that. So they produced a son. It was of the flesh. It was nothing special about it. He says, while the son of the free woman, the son of Sarah, was born through promise. And by through promise, he's talking about divine promise, meaning it was a supernatural thing that occurred that God made happen. Man could not make it happen. Sarah was too old. Shouldn't have been possible. God makes it happen through his promise, through his supernatural deliverance. All right. So now, Paul, this is where Paul kind of launches into this part where that can kind of like lose, it loses me sometimes, honestly, when I first started reading this. He says, verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So he's going to start getting into an allegory, a symbolism time. He says, these women are two covenants. In other words, they're, he's going to about to make them represent two covenants, two different covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, this is where, like, like I said, some confusion can happen. You can kind of lose where Paul's going with this. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page here because if we don't, if we don't tr- make the transition well, we can kind of lose where Paul is going with all of this. All right? He's basically now breaking into an allegory, breaking into a symbolism, saying, okay, let's say that we have these two covenants and each of these woman, women represent one of the, one of the covenants. And he describes the one from Mount Sinai, which is the law that was given to Moses. And he says, she is Hagar. So Hagar is now representing the Old Testament law that was given to Moses, the Mosaic covenant. All right, that was delivered on Mount Sinai when, he, when God wrote out the Ten Commandments, gave the law to Moses. That's what Hagar is representing. Now, it's really important to understand that this is just an allegory that Paul is giving because you got to understand He's not literally saying that it was the Ishmaelites, Ishmael's descendants, that came up with the law. That's not the way it happened. The law was really given to the Jews who were the descendants of Isaac, all right, the descendants of Abraham. All right, they were the ones who God gave the law to, who were told to follow the law, and everything like that. So it's not that Paul is saying that it was of Hagar's line and Ishmael's line that the law came to be. He's just saying Right now, this is kind of a symbolism thing, all right? Hagar is meant to represent this old te- the Old Testament uh, law, the Mosaic Covenant, all right? Keep following me. I know it's a little tricky, but verse 25, he says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So for the second time, Paul emphasizes that Hagar represents the law, represents the Mosaic Covenant, and then for the second time, he emphasizes this word, slavery. 
attached to it. And then he even goes as far as saying she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. In other words, at that point, the Jews that lived at that time were under this Old Testament covenant, which is he equates to slavery. They are slaves. Why are they slaves? Well, we know from what Paul has already talked about in Galatians, he considered them slaves because they are bound to having to live and follow these laws, trying to perfect themselves by the flesh, trying to do everything they can, you know, with rituals, with cleansings, with prayers, with offerings, all this stuff, constantly having to try to do it perfectly so that somehow they can obtain their own justification. Somehow they can obtain their own salvation. And Paul's already made it clear in Galatians that it's not possible. Paul tried. He was one of the ones who was like the most devout about it. He tried. And where does he find that it leads him on? In Galatians 2, he talks about, for through the law, I died to the law, meaning all I saw my life headed to by living out the law was death. I was a slave condemned to die because I couldn't do it perfectly. We cannot do this and be justified through the law. It is not possible. So he equates it to slavery. He equates it to being trapped, being stuck. And he says next in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Now, again, this gets a little confusing. The Jerusalem above is our mother. What does he mean by that? Jerusalem above is our mother. It doesn't really mean that like we have a lady up there that's our mother that's waiting for us. When he says the Jerusalem above, first, let's just make it clear what we're talking about. He says the Jerusalem above, he is referencing heaven. He's representing uh, a picture that's both Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy of the new Jerusalem that, is exi- that exists in heaven that's been perfected uh, by God where there is no sin, there is no, uh, no sorrow, no sadness. Everything is perfect because that is where God dwells, okay, in the new Jerusalem. So he says, the Jerusalem above is free, meaning there is no slavery, there is no condemnation, because that is where we have already been saved. That is where we have already achieved our justification. And he says, she is our mother. Again, not talking about a person, but referencing the covenant, a new covenant. And in specific, he's referencing the covenant of Christ that we now have, that brings us to the new Jerusalem, all right? And through that new covenant, through Jesus Christ, we now have a new, we have, a, we have the ability to call ourselves free because we become heirs to the promise, as he talked about in chapter three. And by becoming heirs to the promise, we have now basically, you know, for lack of a better word, obtained citizenship to the new Jerusalem, to this place. We are now free citizens of the New Jerusalem through the covenant of Jesus Christ, through our faith in him. Verse 27. I know this is a lot. Trust me, it's going to get really good, though. It really is. It is already good. I mean, it's really, I love where this is going, where Paul's going with this. It says, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, 
Paul quotes Isaiah 54.1 here, okay? And he does so to kind of make a point, and, the, and, and he's trying to shift again. He's starting to shift where he's going with all of this. Um, re- once again, referencing the problem that is existing in Galatia right now, the whole reason why he's writing this letter, which is that these Jewish Christians, so-called Christians, have come along and basically convinced all these Galatians, these new Christians, that, hey, it's great that you believe in Jesus Christ, but that's not enough. It's not enough. You also need to follow the law if you really want to be saved. It's not enough. But Paul references this verse because he is trying to get them to see that it has been a prophecy that's existed for years in the Jewish faith that at some point, when we talk about the New Jerusalem, when we talk about in heaven, that the citizens of that place would be more from what he calls the children of the desolate one. In other words, Gentiles, ones who are not legit Jews, that they would become more numerous than the one who has a husband, referencing Sarah and her descendants. Okay? He's basically saying that this was a... And, and this isn't just like Paul trying to make this like new connection. Like It was a common Jewish belief even at that time that they knew that at some point in the future... It was a prophetic thing that a bunch of Gentiles were going to come to faith in the one true God. They believed that. They believed that was going to happen. The catch is, for them, the struggle is, for them, is when it came to this happening through Jesus, the Jews had a problem with it because they thought that in doing in this happening, when this was going to happen, that it meant that the Gentiles would have to become Jews first in order to obtain this salvation, in order to obtain this, this citizenship. But now what you have happening as they're watching this start to happen is all these Gentile Christians are growing. Paul's going to these cities and they go to, I mean, imagine as a Jewish person where you go to Jerusalem and all you see around you is a bunch of Jews in the temple, okay? Even as the church first starts out, the first churches are mostly Jews, And then you travel to another city and you visit the church of that city and you look around and there's hardly any Jews around. And it was a big, and and now they're having to struggle with this idea of being like, wait, but you're not even following the Old Testament law. You're not even following the, like, this doesn't seem to fit in with what they thought it was supposed to look like. And therefore they start challenging it and they they, they start basically persecuting it by saying, no, 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 that's not okay. Even the ones that claimed that they were Christians had a hard time with this, and that's why Paul's even having to write this letter, because they were going around basically saying, no, that's great, yes, awesome, you believe in Jesus, but guess what, now you need to do this too. They, were they, they just didn't know how to accept the new covenant for what it was, which is something that came supernaturally from God, which is where Paul's going right now. Verse 28, now you... Brothers, talking to the Galatians, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, seems like a simple sentence, but I do not want you to miss, like, the amazing thing that Paul is basically saying here. That just as Isaac was supernaturally born by God's actions, 
just as he was supernaturally born to be the child of the promise that, he, that was given to Abraham, to be the heir that was given to Abraham, in the same way you are children of the promise, meaning you have been supernaturally born by God's act for you through Jesus Christ. Meaning you have now, you know, this is referencing everything that even Jesus talked about when he, you think about John 3, when he says, you need to be born again. Jesus teaches this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has a hard time understanding, what are you talking about born again? Like everything like this. What he is referencing is the act that God must, through the whole work of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, through, his, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, you must be born again of the Spirit in a supernatural way. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have salvation, which comes, as we've been emphasizing all through this passage, that comes by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, then you have God having supernaturally rebirthed you into a child of the promise in the same manner that Isaac was supernaturally born into this world. It's an amazing and beautiful thing to really connect yourself to and really realize just how special you are and that God has worked in your life in such a powerful and amazing way and changed you completely, repurposed you to be a child of his. And then verse 29, he keeps going, he says, but just, now he's getting back to the problem, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so also it is now. Now, back to the story of Isaac and Ishmael. At one point, as the two boys are growing up, Ishmael is quoted to having watched Isaac and just laughing at him, mocking him, is how it was interpreted at the time. Just basically, you know, persecuting him. And Paul's saying, just as that happened between Isaac and and Ishmael, because Ishmael was of the flesh and Isaac was of the promise. So it happens now. So it is happening now. In other words, it's happening between the Jews and the Christians. And really what Paul's getting at is a greater um, theme that happens really throughout history, which is that natural religion meaning religion that is of the flesh, religion that requires an idea that you need to follow a set of rules or do, the, or do a, just a perfect type of way as much as you can, as hard as you can. You have to work to obtain salvation. That your salvation depends on you, upon the flesh. Any type of natural religion is always going to take offense and want to attack a religion that is born of the supernatural that says, actually, no, you're not good enough. And God is the only hope that you have. Jesus Christ is the only hope that you have. And that's really the contrast that we're seeing here when he talks about the one born according to the flesh and the one born according to the spirit. Because the one born according to the spirit knows that they are only saved because of what God has done for them. That they are only saved because of God supernaturally working a miracle for them. And that without that, they'd be lost. And they look at those that are trying to attain it on their own, and they say, you're never going to get there. 
and the people who build their whole lives around that idea that their life is about their own goodness and their own uh, accomplishments and what they are doing right and all this stuff, hate that idea that you would tell them that their life is basically a failure because they're not going to get there on their own. As Paul says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, this was something that Sarah said in the story. She tells Abraham, cast Hagar and Ishmael aside, for they shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. But again, Paul's extending it out into this allegory that he's illustrated to say that those who shall try to live of the flesh, those who will try to obtain their salvation on their own, those who would try to make it happen themselves, they will not share in the inheritance of the ones who have been supernaturally saved by Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't happen. It's not what the gospel illustrates. It says they will not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, with the son of the promise. This means for Paul, and what he's illustrating right now, it meant that Jewish unbelievers under the law, they wouldn't inherit salvation like the church was going to inherit salvation. It just didn't, wouldn't happen. Salvation for Paul, he's really clear. The gospel of Christ says that salvation comes by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. That's it. It's the only way to get salvation. And anybody trying to obtain salvation on their own, anyone trying to, to be just the, the best person they can be because they think someday they'll get rewarded for, those, for their efforts, guess what? You don't get the same inheritance that the, son of the, that the children of the promise get, the children of Christ. And so verse 31, he kind of sums it up. Summary statement wise says, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In other words, our salvation is supernatural. We're not slaves anymore. We are now free. We are not slaves to having to try to obtain our own works, our own salvation, trying to do everything that we can so that we can somehow be good in God's eyes. But God has declared us good because of our faith in Jesus Christ and because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. That is why God looks at us and calls us good, not because he sees us for all our brokenness and all our sinfulness, but when he looks at us, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, he sees his son's righteousness in us. That is what makes us free. That is what makes us children of the promise. So if I was to summarize this, if I was to look at question two, it says, what does this passage mean? There's a few big things out of here. First off is that the gospel is supernatural. It is God acting. It is not Mankind doing something 
on its own, but it is God taking action. And living under the law is basically just trying to achieve your salvation naturally, basically trying to do as much good as you can to somehow earn it yourself. It's an act of the flesh, just as Abraham and Sarah tried to act on the flesh and create an heir through Hagar. And what it ultimately leads to is slavery and no inheritance because we fail. We can't do it because God is holy and cannot be a part of anything that is flawed. And because it is possible to live that perfect life, you ultimately fail, meaning you are just a slave condemned. Belief in Christ, though, results in a supernaturally being born again as children of the promise, as Paul says. So therefore, we receive salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And the supernatural, the other point that Paul is making, the supernatural will always offend the natural because it says that man on his own is not good enough. And for somebody who is trying to work, all, work hard and obtain their own salvation, that becomes offensive. Because we say we need Jesus, and that is the only way that we can be saved. And they don't like to hear it. So when I was thinking about this and as we were looking at question three, like how do we naturally resist this? I honestly think that what ends up happening is we tend to shy away from the offensiveness of the gospel. That we tend to um, almost become apologetic when talking about the gospel. We end up kind of shying away from things that, it, this, you know, apologizing that it teaches about concepts like sin and hell. We, we, get, we don't want to like make anyone uncomfortable and make them feel like we're judging them so we don't talk about those things. And then what ends up happening is to, to better help us be able to feel like we can share what we believe, we start cutting and piecing our own theology based on concepts that are really easy to accept. You know, we take like the true concept, like God is love, and we make that everything and the only thing. Not that God is not love, God is, but there's so much more to God that scripture teaches. There's so much more to the gospel. But we just center on the easy things and just that's what we base it on. And we, we kind of like have this hodgepodge definition of what the gospel is and what Christianity is because that way we don't have to really offend anybody. That way we don't have to like make it look like we are in opposition of people's beliefs. We can all be accepting of everything. But then what happens because of that is ultimately instead of living out of the supernatural gospel that we're afraid to share, we end up ourselves kind of like almost tricking ourselves into thinking that we're, you know, followers of Christ and that we're like, you know, on the right path. When in reality, what we've done is created our own natural religion that says that all that, that says that you know it's all about just saying, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I'm not going to do anything really that bad. I'm just going to like you know have a life that doesn't have any of the really bad stuff in it, and there you go. And we're just going to keep loving it. We're going to keep just like you know love, acceptance, and just keep it all simple.
And the other thing I think we do that kind of stands opposition with us is then when true brothers and sisters of, of the faith, when true believers kind of call us out on stuff, when they kind of mention this, when they say like, hey, you know, I don't really see you living out the gospel in the ways that the gospel really is illustrated, we take offense to it and we get defensive and we make excuses and we go on the attack, we start pointing fingers because, you know, we, we, we don't want them to be kind of stepping into our lives and, tell, and challenging us, saying that we need to live a supernatural life. Hey, I got this like really nice little place that I'm living right now. Why are you messing with me? You know, I've created this nice, easy life for me right now, like where, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a saved Christian, but I don't really have to do anything that, like, radical. I'm not having to, like, you know, really, like, make, mess up my whole life. I'm not having to go tell people, like, that they're going to hell. I'm not having to do any of that. Why are you rattling my cage? We get upset about it, and we, we take offense to that. But the reality is this. When we talk, when Paul talks in this passage about those born according to the Spirit, he's referencing the Holy Spirit that now lives and dwells inside of us. And this is something that we cannot miss. This is a concept that we can't just skip over real easily and just be like, oh yeah, great, the Holy Spirit lives inside of me we got to understand just the gravity of what that means and what that means if you claim to be a Christian, which is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, now dwells inside of you. In the Old Testament, in the temple, there was an innermost chamber that was called the Holy of Holies, where only, or that, we're in that place, that was the place that the presence of God dwelt here on earth, it was inside this chamber. And nobody that wasn't clean, that wasn't purified, could step foot in that chamber. And in fact, the priest, that when he would go to make the sacrifices, had to go through all these rituals of cleansings in order just to step forward to him. And still, just in case he didn't do it right, they had a rope tied around his waist so that if his bells that were on his robe stopped jingling after a while, they started pulling in the dead body. That's how holy and how perfect and how amazing the presence of God was was like that's how like set apart it was that's how radical he was he is and now we're saying think about this now we are saying that that same presence that same spirit now lives inside of you because the work of Jesus Christ the supernatural work that he accomplished on the cross in defeating death for you has now made you so justified so righteous, change your heart so that the Spirit of God can now dwell inside of you. Do not miss how amazing, how beautiful, how radical, how supernatural that is. And yet, we really want to tell ourselves that all that is just so that the Holy Spirit can just sit there and his only job is to be like, no, nah, no, nah, don't do that. No, nah, nah, don't do that. But that's, what we, that's, that's the way so many Christians like to live. That is the only role of the Spirit in their lives. And to me, supernatural thing? Or is that just a thing that we've created of the flesh? 
what Jesus accomplished for us, what Jesus accomplished for us for the cross is so amazing. It makes us so, it changes our hearts in a holy like That should like make us want to just, I don't know, dance, yell, shout, scream, sing, whatever, because it is amazing. It is beautiful. And when we ask ourselves then, okay, therefore, how, do, how, how does this live it out? Because we recognize that what we have living inside of us is something so much greater than some kind of supernatural conscience. But is the Spirit of God looking to change our lives completely around the gospel and what the gospel is all about? That just doesn't mean that we're accepting and not challenging and whatever, but loving them, feeling filled with so much compassion for them that we can't help but talk about it, but share it in the ways that we, in the words that we say, in the actions that we do, that Jesus Christ is the only way. See people, that we see them as the God sees them as lost and broken people, and that it breaks our hearts and compels us to the point where we have no choice but to do something. And if we have a problem with that, then we really need to ask ourselves what am I believing to be true about the gospel myself? I really want to leave us with today is asking ourselves if, my, if our lives aren't looking that supernatural, if they're looking just kind of like natural everyday lives, like we just, you know, we, we, go, to church, we go to church once a week and we attend a Bible study or two or a gospel community or two or whatever it might be a couple times a week and then just kind of live our lives, if our gospel. Because if we believe the gospel to be true, then our lives should not look as such a natural, simple, easy thing. And if we aren't being broken to the point where we feel that we have no choice but to be loving people that are lost and broken and hurting. Because the true gospel says, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. We can't just tell ourselves, well, they'll figure it out. can't just tell ourselves, well, it's not on me. Maybe God will, will take him in anyways. That's not what the gospel says. And if we have a hard time being broken for our lost people, then what are we not believing to be true about the gospel? So I really want to encourage you this week, with different people, what are our actions? What are our words? What are the ways that we're talking, demonstrating that what we believe to be true about the gospel? And if we're struggling with that, I encourage you spend time in prayer, spend time, in re- spend time reading the gospel, spend time just reinforcing what the gospel is all about and letting yourself rest in this awesome realization that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you to supernaturally Make your life something that isn't just like everybody else. But to make your life into something that supernaturally impacts people's lives. Pray that you would be dependent on that, on the, on the Holy Spirit that just is yearning to be just let loose inside of your life. Do you think, do, do you, 
You really think it's going to be hard for God to act when he's done so much? And yet we, we, we box God up so easily in our me. I'm just, you know, a simple person. No one's really going to listen to me because I'm either too young or too old or, or, or too not really, you know, like I don't, I'm not really good with my words or this and that. Think about all that God has already accomplished for you. How soon do you really think he can't supernaturally use you if his Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you? Don't let yourself believe a false gospel. Don't just let yourselves believe to that you can't because the Holy Spirit can and wants and is just ready for your life. Let's pray.